Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzen. I have a fantastic show tonight of great personal interest to me. I grew up on the Iron Range in a little town called Virginia, Minnesota. When I was about 10 years old or so in the mid-60s, I became aware of a rock and roll band in our town, soon to be called Tomorrow's Children. While the airwaves were filled with the Beatles, Rolling Stones, the Animals, and others, our town of under 10,000 had its own rock band. To make it even more interesting... The band used the abandoned Methodist church where both my guest Walt Rabideau and I and our families belonged as their rehearsal hall as they built a new church on Silver Lake. Uh, it's an incredible story because back at the time there was people in town that thought this was damn near a satanic move. Long hairs in a rock and roll band in the Methodist church. Anyway, uh, of course, that was very attractive to the young Paul. My guest, Walt, and a, a few others of his band ended up in California where they hooked up with psychedelic and almost a new age guru named Stephen Gaskin. They took off in a caravan around the country before they founded the farm, which the Wall Street Journal called the General Motors of the American Commune System. This story also includes a performance by my guest at Stonehenge and other places. But let's get to it. I want to warmly welcome from his home in Petaluma, California, 1965 Roosevelt High School graduate, Walt Rabideau. Walt, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm real good. Thanks. Yeah, doing fine. Well, you and I have spoken on the phone a few times. We've never met in person. And I'm trying to remember if I ever had the chance to see your band when you were performing at Dances in Virginia, Minnesota. But tell us a little bit about the beginnings of your first band, The Willerman, that morphed into Tomorrow's Children. Well, uh, I met David Chalmers, the drummer. He was a year younger than me, but the interesting fact is that uh, we were born on the same day uh, in the same hospital, delivered by the same doctor. Uh, only a year apart, so we we ended up getting pretty aligned, and started a, a band uh, in high school called the Wildermen. And uh, what was interesting about that band, we had a not a keyboardist, but he he played an accordion, uh, and it, it it was called a cord it was called a cordovox. Cordovox, of, of course. And it had a zillion tubes, and it was our first gig, and we were getting all practiced up, and we were so excited. And just before the gig was going to go on. One of his tubes went out, and his whole rig went out. <laughs> so we had we had to call the person that owned the local. Uh, you probably remember who that was, a, a electronics store. Mm-hmm. He had to come down, open the store, find the tube. We bought the tube and just made the gig. So that was that was the Wilderman. The show must go on, right? <laughs> yeah, the show must go on. But so that was our my first uh, in, you know initiation into playing with a rock band, and my collaboration with uh, David Chalmers. Now, what uh, what kind of music were you guys listening to back then? Everything that was on the radio, basically. Which know. was everything. I mean, I remember I grew up uh, with an earshot of WEBC, and, and, you know, you think right. back on it, Walt. You go, you could turn on an afternoon or an evening of WEBC and hear the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Bob Dylan, the Supreme, yeah. Stevie Wonder, the Animals. Right, it, right. It was the, the kind of golden age of radio and rock and roll in a way. Certainly was. So there was all that material to draw from. I mean, all we did was cover tunes, you know. Mm-hmm. 
basically. So now, how did uh, so then how, how did it morph in to Tomorrow's Children, the band I was aware of? Well, I I uh, was I went to Florida on a on a misguided mission. I was going to play music down in Miami, and I went to school basically to get a one A to stay out of the draft. But I was so homesick for my hometown and everything. I went home at, at Christmas time, and. Uh, David Chalmers, the drummer, had already started another group called the Druids, and he was growing his hair long and everything, and all this shit was happening. I go, wow. And I, I, I realized I was missing something. I went back to Florida, finished up, you know, my, my schooling, and that semester, and went back, and we, and, uh, me coming back into Virginia meant that, um, that was the end of the Druids. That was the David, the band that David played in. And then we just put together Tomorrow's Children, and I just can't remember. We just kind of clicked. And uh, started putting uh, uh, tunes, to, you know, uh, cover tunes together. But the times uh, just seemed to be just ripe for us. I don't know, you know, it was just perfect. The timing, uh, music was really happening in uh, in Virginia. For the Iron Ranch, it was really surprising. But all the bands went through there. And uh, I would, I saw, you know, Dwayne Eddy, and you know, uh, these troops, you know, the Martha and Vandellas, and all these things were going on. So, and they would pack these. Uh, National Guard Army. So once we once we got in, into it, we had a decent sound, and and we started playing these uh, National Guard armories all over the uh, the Iron Range of Grand Rapids, Cloquet, Hibbing, Virginia, and uh, we'd pack about a thousand kids into those those places. So it was it was pretty magical, actually. Well, and that's uh, you know the young Bob Dylan over twenty miles. Uh, West of us, of course, had his band, the Golden Chords, and they were playing the armories, rocking the armories as well. So it was a fertile uh, ground for 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 rock and rollers and and rock and roll fans. So who had the great idea to rent out the uh, abandoned Methodist church to uh, rehearse in? Yeah, I don't remember. I, you know, we're going over fifty years now, so I don't think we even rented it. I think I think they just let us use it. Right. In my my recollection, there was nothing that we, we set up on the altar like it was a stage. <laughs> Where you know? I was baptized, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story, Walt. So tell us, uh, we've got a little time left before we hear uh, one of your singles. So you guys actually put out some forty-five RPM singles back then. Yeah, we did, yep. Now tell us about how that came about. Well, one of the band members in the original incarnation of Tomorrow's Children was from Milwaukee, and his his family had connections with someone that owned a a recording studio. So we went to Milwaukee, and we recorded, uh, it was a cover of the Young Rascals in in, in the Midnight Hour. Or they they done it, you know, right. their version of the it. The Wilson Pickett tune, yeah. yeah. We just copied it, you know, basically, and uh, and WEBC uh, picked it up and uh, and started playing playing it like crazy, and uh, ended up um, putting it at number one. And I knew it really wasn't number one against the Beatles <laughs> and the Stones and stuff like that. Sure. But but they wanted us in their corral so they could come out and do the dances. You know, they would make a cut. Yeah. They would send they would send a G- DJ to the to the armory where we were playing, and they would advertise us all week and this and that. So it was really a, it was a it was, it was a great thing. So basically, um, midnight hour was just a vehicle for us to just to get out and you know we. We were, you know, lo- local. <laughs> we didn't get that far. We did some gigs like in Ironwood, Michigan, and Superior, and a few things like that. But mostly the Iron Range. What uh, can you remember? What you guys were getting paid back then? Maybe a couple hundred bucks a night or something. Oh, 
no, it was like, I think our fee was 125 Okay. And then sometimes we'd get a little bit more. But that was about, that was about max. That's about all we could get was 125 Now, you guys, I remember, you had some really nice equipment. Because back then, when, like myself, as a young budding rock and roller, you'd, you'd, you know, you got your first instrument in, in Sears catalog, you got a harmony guitar, and then you wanted an electric guitar, so you went to the Montgomery Wards catalog and got an airline, but you guys had some nice amps and guitars back then in your time. Yeah, we did. Um, fortunately, my, my mother uh, bought me my first electric guitar, uh, a Fender Stratocaster, and we got it down at B-Sharp Music, and so B-Sharp in Minneapolis, you know, in Central Avenue there, sure. was where everybody went, so, you know, after we really got going, uh, Jim Lopez, you know, he gave us some great deals, so along with everybody else. Well, he was and, the uh, one. He was the one that uh, when the Beatles came to Met Stadium in 1965, he uh, gave George Harrison uh, a Rickenbacker 12 string, and but didn't give John Lennon one. I think John was PO'd for years and years <laughs> about that. But yeah, and those were such beautiful yeah. guitars, and I believe you yeah. played one as well. You had a Rickenbacker at one time. I had a Rickenbacker. Well, yeah, I had to have a Rickenbacker because that's you know the English bands were wearing you know like well John Lennon had one, and they used to wear them kind of high up. You know, sure. I tried I tried doing that, but it was pretty uncomfortable. But yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely had a Rickenbacker. Well, we've got uh, my guest, my hometown buddy, and fellow uh, rock and roller and Methodist. Walt Rabideau and we're going to listen to a, a song, a single that his band, Tomorrow's Children, put out, and then we'll have, uh, it's called In the Midnight Hour, the old Wilson Pickett tune. They copied the Rascals version, and we've got Walt on for the whole show tonight on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metz. I want to give a shout-out to the Divas, a great female trio up on the Iron Range, based out of Virginia, Minnesota, my hometown, my guest hometown, that cut that beautiful bumper music for me. Walt Ramadou, so how long were the Tomorrow's Children together, and then when did you guys uh, move out to California? I think... I think we were together about three years, and it was the summer of 1968 that David and I finally were drawn to uh, San Francisco. It was like a, a magnet with everything that was going on, and we kind of and we're at the end of our, our road there with the Tomorrow's Children. So, uh, yeah, the summer of 68, we went went out there. The summer of love. 
Yeah. Well, we missed the summer of love. That was supposedly nineteen sixty-seven. Right. That was the year before. So, so, I, so I really regretted that. You know, because yeah. what was happening was uh, our original uh, bandman uh, went out to California. And he was sending me back letters saying, "Well, tonight I'm going to see the Grateful Dead, Big Brother, and the Holder Company, and and uh, Quicksilver, and then tomorrow I'm going to see BB King, and blah blah blah." I'm just going nuts, you know. <laughs> and then that and that night I'll be playing a, a, a gym in I think Cherry, Minnesota, like a little, <laughs> nice little country country school gymnasium, you know. And uh, and I, I was just going crazy, so. Uh, we just informed that David and I were on just another path, and we informed the other two band members that we're going to California. So we disbanded the band and went to join the, uh, you know, the psychedelic revolution that was going on in, in uh, San Francisco. That's that's phenomenal. Of course, Cherry, Minnesota, is uh, where Gus Hall, the perennial presidential candidate for the Communist Party came from. So let's uh, give a little historical background there. So tell okay. us about that first weekend uh, you and Chalmers showed up in uh, San Francisco. Ah, uh, boy. Well, we split up. We had we already had friends from Virginia. Believe it or not, there were several people from Virginia already had made the move ahead of us, so we were kind of drowned out for that. So I, I went and went off and stayed with my uh, the, the, the band man that we had, and David stayed with some other friends. So we, we basically, in those days, there was no, no email, no, right. no phones, nothing. So we pretty much got, we got out of touch with each other for a, for a period, and then came back together. But not, we, weren't, we weren't playing music together out there. I was, I was just so in awe of all the bands and everything. You know, That's mostly what I did. So who did you get a chance to see? Just about everybody that was at the Fillmore, you know. He, Bill Graham was bringing everybody in, you know. So I got, you know, Led Zeppelin, The Who, and stuff. But um, I was really into Santana. I would, uh, you know, go early so I could stand right in front of the stage where he he was. He was just a young kid, right? And uh, so that mo- those are the ones. The, the Grateful Dead and stuff really stand out to me. But when I got to San Francisco in the summer of '68. Every it was hap- every every weekend in Golden Gate Park there was a free concert, mm-hmm. and that was amazing because that's where I got to see you know Quicksilver, Messenger Service, and uh, Janis Joplin, you know the Big Brother and the Holden Company. Everybody, everybody was at their peak, you know. Right. And uh, and then you know, of course I saw Hendrix at the, at Winterland, and and just just what everybody was coming through there, you know. Now was and, LS uh, was LSD still legal in '68? It was never legal. It's still, I don't think it is. No, it was not legal. No, totally illegal. It was. Totally. It was legal for a while. Okay. Well, yeah. anyway, they put the clampers on that, but yeah, definitely that that was what was going on at the time. Yeah. So a lot of mind expansion. <laughs> right. So now, uh, how did you then hook up with? Uh, would it be right to call him a psychedelic guru, uh, yeah, Stephen Gaskin? That, yeah, that's pretty much. Um, well, at, at the time, because of the psychedelic drugs, people were suddenly interested in like Eastern religion and you know all kinds of stuff. You know, yeah. so uh, so gurus were flying in from India and all over, and people were joining Hare Krishna, and they were doing Yogananda, and they were doing Hatha Yoga, and all this stuff. And I was kind of bouncing around. I had become a, a true spiritual seeker, and I just you know I was just like everybody else at the time. And or most people, and uh, and the only one that made sense to me as far as like speaking about the psychedelic experience, who really knew about it, was this guy Stephen Gaskin, and he had been a, uh, a semantics teacher at uh, San Francisco State, 
and a super brilliant guy, but really knew how to, to unravel the psychedelic experience and what was going on and started having these uh, meetings uh, on Monday night class in a place called the Family Dog, where you know, sure. Grateful Dead played. It was, it was a dance hall. So every Monday night, and I got up to like 1,500 people uh, that were attending every week, and he would run these big meetings and... Uh, a question and answer, and just discussing the psychedelic state of mind and everything, you know. And then he uh, he got these uh, all around the country. He started getting these uh, invitations to speak at colleges. He started getting famous and started uh, getting invited to colleges and churches throughout the country. And he said, "I'm going to um, I'm going to dismiss the class and I'm going to go out." He hit, he had a school bus that he lived in, and he says, "I'm going to go out and on the speaking tour." And they said, "Oh, Stephen, can we come with you?" And he says, "Okay, well, if you get if you can get a bus or a truck or whatever to live in, you, know, on the, you can follow me. You just you have to be self-sustaining and and uh, you know, no alcohol or you know, guns and you know the usual stuff that we've all been kind of aspiring to." So that lasted. I was on that. Um, it was eleven thousand five hundred miles. We were on the road for three and a half months, and got back to San Francisco. And everybody said, well, I think it's now is the time to not just melt back into the city, but to go out and actually, you know, start a community, something that, you know, we've been talking about forever. And uh, and so uh, the core of the caravan went back to into the middle of the country, found land in Tennessee, south of Nashville, about 70 miles. Uh, I mean, yeah, 75 miles, and it was uh, $70 an acre for the land. So we just... Uh, just started a community and started from basically nothing. There was a house and a barn on the property, and we got through that first year with um, living in army tents that we bought, you know, just to get protected. But at the same time, uh, the music was starting to, to to come alive, but it was only acoustic music. And the first band that we started, the first before it was even named the Farm Band, we just played around with some acoustic instruments and said, ah, well, we're we're never going to be electric. We're going to just be real, you know, pure and just right. wooden and stuff. music. And, and then this guy comes from Franklin, moves onto the from Franklin, Tennessee, moves onto the farm, and he's got two amps and two guitars. And uh, so that was that was the beginning of that. And David cobbled together a, a, a drum set and and. Uh, and uh, it, the musicians that played in this band, we'd all had experience playing before. The the, the um, bass player and the keyboardist had been in bands in San Francisco, and David and I had been in bands and stuff. So we we the form, the farm band formed, and then uh, Stephen he had the idea of like because he, he liked to speak. Hey, that was his main thing was speaking. Well, that we, the band we would go out on the road together, and then we would. Um, we would gather a crowd, then he would speak, and then we would play some more. And we had our own PA system. We were a completely self-contained unit, and uh, we didn't charge money. So our motto was, this band always plays for free. Hmm. So so the whole time that we did our thing, we were, until we changed our name later in the, uh, to the NRC, we, we worked outside of the music industry, We were, you know? But we had our own... Uh, records we had our own record company and mail order and you know we just kind of did our own thing oh but bless you the- guys walt rabidou let's listen a little bit uh music by the farm band we've got walt rabidou guitar player and cool cat um we're gonna we need to hear more about uh the commune and uh life after the farm band with the nrc and more we've got walt on for two more sets on the wall of power radio
Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. My guest for the whole show tonight, spiritual seeker, musician, former Methodist, and Iron Range native, Walt Rabidou. Uh We got done with the, uh, the end of the last set on the radio, uh, Wall of Power Radio Hour, talking about Walt and Stephen Gaskin, the leader, and how they formed this commune south of Nashville, Tennessee. So... It was $70 an acre. How many acres were you uh, folks able to buy at that time, Walt? Uh, we bought 1,000 acres wow. initially. And then we bought the uh, additional uh, 750 acres. It was more money. It wasn't 70 anymore. I can't remember. It was 1,500 or something. But anyway, we, uh, we, we ended up with a, a total of 1,750 acres. <laughs> oh. uh, I've, I've had some of those... Uh, uh, those ori- original Tennesseans didn't quite know what to think when all the long hairs descended uh, south of Nashville there. But how many people started at that uh, commune? How many? What was the population? It, it, uh, it started with 250 people, I would wow. say, right around there. And uh, so tell us. So you had tents, and then uh, you started just to create your own village. And So tell yeah, us we- about that. Well, the first winter we had to, you know, it gets pretty cold down there in Tennessee, believe it or not. So we bought a bunch of army tents from the army, used army tents, and that was how we spent our first winter. And then uh, just started uh, building houses, and we tried to be, you know, as resourceful as we could. We went out and we'd do a tear down a barn or something locally, come back and reuse the wood. Um, we got in partnership with a, one of our neighbors who had an old sawmill, and he put the, got the sawmill working, and we... We helped run the sawmill, and then we got to keep, take uh, oak, Tennessee oak, back home to to build the community. And then, uh, as as time went on, and our we uh, we uh, we built a print shop and started uh, putting out our own books on you know different aspects of you know what we were doing, and you know vegetarian cookbook and a, a book on midwifery, midwifery, and uh, you know different things like that in Stephen's books and. Um, and uh, boy, there's so much. We started a, uh, a soy dairy. We were the first uh, Caucasians to to produce uh, soy um, tofu wow. at, a, at a large level. So we had a we, that's see we were we were complete vegetarians. So for our pr- protein, we really did rely on a lot on soybeans. So we had soy milk and and and, uh, and tofu that we made there. And then we grew our own vegetables, and we had a canning and freezing operation, so we could keep our, you know, we have stuff all year, all year round. So we did. We just basically, you know, then we had. Um, of course, we we were young, so we started having babies and stuff. So sure. we, we had a whole midwifery crew. My wife was a midwife, and just all the babies were born, you know, right right at home. And uh, so then we ended up, you know, as the years went on, it just kept growing, and as our needs went, you know, so we had to we had to build a clinic. And we ended up, we had two doctors, and uh, th- these are doctors that could have been out making mega bucks out in the world, but they had devoted their time to the community. So what was really interesting about it all, when you put this many people together, that somebody's going to step up and know something about something. Yeah, right. And we had a lot of really good, smart people. So we had people that, you know, uh, you know, they had lawyers, and doc- we had doctors, and then uh, we had people that knew how to do print shop and how to do editing, and and then we had the, we had a motor pool because we had to keep the you know so people that knew about you know uh, vehicles and keeping everything running, we had a motor pool, and then we also had a we had a um, a, a lot of 
a lot of the way we had to make money was we had to go out like any family, go out and earn money. Mm-hmm. Because we, we, the ideal was that we were going to be self-sufficient. But in reality, you know, there's so many needs sure. monetarily-wise. So we... We started a, 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 a wood shop, and then so all, anybody that was a carpenter, so we had some really good lead carpenters and architects and designers. It was pretty amazing. So basically, that was we brought money home um, to the basic budget. You know, we, it was a one for all, all for one, real communal living, and uh, and uh, so I, I when I wasn't when the farm band wasn't banding. Um, we were the paint crew, and we would go out locally and paint houses and stuff. And then when we would come back, we would give all our money to the bank lady. And uh, so it really was that. But w- what we used to do was uh, to, to we would get a take a paint job, and uh, and say it's a five day paint job, and we would just bust tail and work really hard to try to get it done in like three days, so we could have two two days for the band. You know, it's not like we it's not like we just. We were the elite, you know, band, and we didn't have to do anything else. You know what I right, mean? We right. were just like everybody else. Sure. You know, but uh, you know, I'm, but at the same time, very grateful to have had that opportunity. That opportunity. So um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but um, well, it's so there fa- was just a lot going on. It's so fascinating to me because it's really you guys lived the hippie dream. Yeah, we did. <laughs> you know, this was like back to nature, back to the land. Boy, so incredible. When you and I were talking a few days ago, setting up this interview, Walt, you said uh, one of the sons of uh, one of the families that uh, grew up on the farm, lived on the farm, was the guy that invented the Firefox search engine. Yeah, I don't know if he invented it, but he was in on the ground floor. His name is Asa Dotzler, if you look it up. And oh. But he was, at the, he was at the ground floor of it, whether he started it or... But he was at the very beginning of it, yes. Well, then, you know, you read these stories about Steve Jobs and uh, started Microsoft after long nights coming down off LSD listening to Grateful Dead tapes. And you just <laughs> you just go, you know, that psychedelic energy, uh, the best part of it really led to some, some great things. Yes, yes, yes. What, changed uh, the world. <laughs> yeah, changed the world. Now, is the, uh, is the farm still active? Yes, the farm is still active. In 1984-85, it made a transition from a, from a, to a collective, from communal living, from a commune, you know, to a collective where people uh, paid a certain amount of money each month to live there, where they own their house, but they don't own the land it's on. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a unique setup. And there's uh, 150, 200, 150 people still living there. And there's the there's the original generation. You know, I have friends that are there. And then there's we call the second gen, which is their kids. You know, and so uh, it's it's changing and and growing and it's at its own pace. You know, but it's still there. Now, and I, I'm assuming they're still selling goods, products, and things like that to uh, keep the enterprise going. Down there, I'm not sure. I think that part of it, I think everybody's kind of on their own now. Okay. You know, as far as like the community, the, the land has been paid for. We, we, had a, we, we had a food company called Farm Foods, and, and uh, towards the end of the farm's run, it got bought out by uh, Barracini Chocolates in New York, and uh, and so that was enough money to to pay off the farm. 
So the farm's paid for. So it's basically just running expenses there. Wow. It'd be interesting to know what that piece of property is worth in uh, yeah, I know. 20, 20, <laughs> 20 uh, values, right? Well, it's yeah. interesting that you got involved with it because, as you know, uh, you and I growing up in Virginia, Minnesota, on the Iron Range, that was uh, is some of the places where the first electrical co-op started, some of the first co-ops in the late 20s and early 30s with our good uh, uh, fellow Finns and socialists that got uh, all those cool – yeah. communal things going. So yeah, you, were, yeah. you were just kind of in a way uh, <laughs> transferring that energy down to a bunch of long hairs down in Tennessee. Bless you. <laughs> now, you must have had – there must have been uh, hippies from around the country that just passed through, stopped by to say hello, I'd imagine, right? Oh, yeah. We had we had all kinds of people coming. We had a, we had a gate and a gatehouse, and then we always – you know, we had to have a crew of people ready to do tours because the locals, some the locals were really interested in what was going on, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we did tours, and then we had people that come, and then people would say, well, I think I want to live here. And then we'd say, well, you better, you know, we call it soaking. You, you stay for a while, make sure this is what you want. Right. Because you know, it's, it's not like on the outside, you know, what you're probably used to. So we did get a lot of people that way, but also we got people... Um, by going out and doing these um, concerts, and we ended up uh, getting people that um, were really big part of the community, and also, uh, like we had the air to we we got the air to Midas muffler, right? Mm-hmm. So so his so his money, you know, his dividend checks or stock checks, they just went right to the buy food, you know, <laughs> and good food. And, <laughs> yeah, and then and then we also had people that came from wealthy family. We had a friend that uh, gave a hundred thousand dollar inheritance, you know. So we we got money that way too, you know. Wow. Through, inherit- through inheritances and because it was all for one, one for all, you know. So. Now, <laughs> when there was when there was conflicts uh, between families between between members, how did you resolve that? Well, let's see. Um, Peacefully, for one thing, we mostly just t- talk things out. You know, um, we had, as far as running the community, we experimented with different forms of self-government. We had a, like a board of directors and different thing, but it was usually a crew of people that were that would help sort out any of the problems that were coming up at the mm-hmm. farm. You know, and that's just what we do. Just try to work it out on a fair basis. You know, as we could. Now. Um Boy, this is just so fascinating to me. Uh, so, the 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 uh, the members of the farm band; those were all Virginia, Minnesota guys. No, no, me and David were from Virginia. But okay. we had friends, but friends that were you know that you know the cheerleader from our high school lived there, and her friend, <laughs> and you know the guy that I that went out to California originally, our band guy, he was there. So, but it was only David and I. That okay. were in the band. The other people were from other parts of the country. Did you have? Uh, I would have loved to hear the uh, conversation that the cheerleaders' parents had after they realized uh, their daughter ran off to hang out with uh, the rockers down at the commune. 
tell you though, her mother, her mother and my mother were very accepting. I mean, some parents weren't. Right. Some parents just want to disown their kids. They were just horrified. But my mother and her mother were, were not like that. And, uh, and one trip, they both came down from Virginia to stay on the farm, and a couple that had lived in a bus vacated their bus you know, had, you know, the carpet on the ceiling and everything, a real hippie bus. Yeah. And uh, my mom and her mom stayed in the bus, right down by uh, Babbling Creek, had to kind of cross a little creek to get to the bus. <laughs> so they were, real, real, they were real troopers, I'll tell you. God bless them. We've got Walt Rabideau on. We're going to listen to another track uh, by his band, The Farm Band. And uh, we got one more set with, uh, with my good friend, and we're going to talk about... How he ended up playing at Stonehenge. Spinal Tap. We just listened to a song by NRC, formerly the Farm Band. We have the lead guitarist and songwriter on the phone with us for the whole show tonight, Mr. Walt Rabideau. So, Walt, tell us, how did uh, the Farm Band morph into NRC? Well, at the time, um, the nuclear industry was starting to rear its ugly head, and people were getting concerned, and um, we... uh, we took the farm band, all the same members, and decided to just take it on, take on the industry. So we changed our name to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, <laughs> and um, so and we had a brilliant songwriter, Th- Thomas Dotzler, who, who who wrote a bunch of tunes, and we um, we we we, we uh, went the art rock theater rock route, and and when we performed, we would wear these uh, uniforms that were sewed by somebody on the farm out of uh, a silver lamé. And, uh, and it, we, we actually started to, t- well, no, here's what happened. We, 
we built our own studio on the farm, an eight-track okay. studio on the farm, and recorded all these original tunes under the NRC name. Uh, and the name of the album is Reactor, and uh, and so that's one of the tunes you'll be hearing. Hmm. And and um, anyway, um, we started getting picked up by the media, and Kurt Loder uh, really liked us from Rolling Stone, and sure. we started getting we started getting invited to. Um, to play at uh, anti-nuke rallies, and there was these people from Muse, um, uh, musicians, uh, camera, whatever. Right, right. But, you know, the Muse, and uh, Bonnie Raitt was big in that, and Jackson Brown and stuff like that, so we ended up starting to do some uh, concerts with them, and uh, we did a concert up in uh, North Dakota, uh, where the they were they wanted to mine uranium on Indian land, and we played with uh, Bonnie Raitt, Jackson Brown, and uh, what's that guy from the Youngbloods? Come on, Jesse Col- Jesse Collins, yeah, yeah. who just had a yeah. new record out. Oh, he did. Yeah, I'd love to track <laughs> that guy down. Boy, that guy could yeah. sing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was great. So, so we did stuff like that. We played at the uh, Washington Monument uh, with the Blood, Sweat, and Tears. <laughs> I think it was, and uh, Peter Paul and Mary. Um, and it was really interesting because it was the day that Jimmy Carter was president and they had a failed attempt to rescue, remember the helicopter crash? Yeah, the Iranian hostages. Yeah, the vibes was terrible in that yeah. That was what we arrived in. But we did it. We did a great gig. So we did a lot of those kind of things. We played with uh, Graham Nash, and I can't think of all of them. But anyway, we really hooked on to something with that and uh we played um we opened for the go-go's in new york city that was one of our first really pay gigs because we had gone from being the farm band kind of just you know waving the communal flag sure and then that this was more of like people didn't even know we were from the farm you know yeah right and uh and so uh, we opened for the go-go's in new york city and then um, we got an invite to play uh, over at uh, Glastonbury and uh, Stonehenge in England. <laughs> oh. So, so we went over there, and I, we, I can't remember who was on the bill. We, remember, uh, let's see, Curtis Mayfield, sure. uh, UB40, uh, Funboy Three. Anyway, that was what was going on at the. That was 1983. Hey, before I forget, yeah. how can people track down? The history of the farm band, the NRC, the farm, and more. Is there a Facebook page, website? What do you got? Uh, I don't have any of that. Yeah. I'm sure there's. you could look it up. I mean, I don't know. Well, you know I, saw, I, I saw a thing when I was... Uh, all kinds of stuff out there. Yeah, when I was starting to uh, think about tracking you down for the radio show, which I have for years, so I'm really excited to have Walt Rabideau on tonight. Was uh, There's stuff, yeah, there's a great... Uh, some sort of documentary on YouTube that I saw about the farm, but I saw you guys playing. And I go, yeah, I think that's a, those two guys are from Virginia. Chalmers was Skinner and Hell, Long Hair. I yeah. go, you know, I have to. Uh, we still have a few minutes left, Walt, but I, but I got to tell you, as someone who's a you know little less than ten years younger than you, I've had such a respect for this band from my hometown that uh, went on to do really on the cusp of the whole hippie dream and really walk the talk, rock the rock, and uh, did your thing, man. It's so incredible. Well, thank you. Great. So so then how long did the NRC go on, Walt, and then what happened to Walt Rabideau? Where did you end up? Um, well, the, the 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 band lasted from I think, 1980 to 1983, 
but by this time, uh, the community was struggling with keeping, you know, you know, it's, it's any family, it's food, shelter, and clothing. Right. And if you have a hard time with that, then you have to figure it out. So I think the, the communal way of doing things had kind of run its course. And, the, and people were starting to leave and said, well, even though I said I was going to stay here forever and spend my life here, I think that I'm going to go back into the world now and take whatever I've learned and go on my own. And that's kind of what I did. I took my, I had a nine and a 10 year old and, uh, and, uh, you know, once once we ended, once we announced that the farm band was splitting up and we were leaving, it was kind of like, kind of like, you know, that was the writing on the wall. You know, that because it was like an end of an institution or something. Yeah. Things are things are changing. So so uh, anyway, that's when I I took my family out and out to California and, and reestablished uh, my life. And then um, and then I got then David moved out and and, and the bass player from the farm from the farm band we were all together out here so we we uh played as a the reflectors we had a power trio we, I think we played for like 18 years wow and I've uh, done a couple of uh, recorded some home recordings and uh, we had a backer for a while who bought bought us equipment and all kinds of stuff. So we just kept playing when we were out here, you know. And then they, my other two members ended up moving away. So now it's uh, just me and my little home studio. Well, we're going to listen to an uh, original song by Walt Rabideau next. Walt, I want to thank you so much. This has been so insightful. We've got to get drummer Dave Chalmers on the phone and see if the three of us talking, if that can't dredge up some memories that, that aren't coming to you tonight, but uh, I, I, I look forward to f- one of these days meeting you in person when we can all travel and uh, and uh, do that thing that we used to do before the pandemic hit, but thank you so much for your time tonight. It's been an incredibly fun interview for me. I appreciate well, it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, too. It was, really, it was, it was fun talking to you. Yeah. Give my best to Dave Chalmers, and Walt, we will talk with you soon. Okay. Sounds great, man. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. The show was produced by Paul Metza, engineered by Patrick Lilia. We'd like to thank our guest, Walt Rabideau, with those great stories, starting to play in the Iron Range, ended up playing at Stonehenge and all points in between. I've got a new record out, re-release of my record, Whistling Past the Graveyard, original songs, 11 of them, and six bonus tracks. Track that down at paulmetza.com and like my dad used to tell me remember to be kind and make someone happy